Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There you'll find a variety of different tiers you can choose from, from $3 to $100 a month, and every dollar helps keep the podcast going. It is one of the darkest chapters in our history, and that history includes the starving of the Indigenous people, so that should tell you something. It was during the Second World War when Canada decided that one of the best courses of action through the use of the War Measures Act was to take Japanese Canadians, many who had never been to Japan, and inter them in camps in the name of national security. In all, 22,000 Japanese were interned, and that comprised 90% of the population of Japanese Canadians in the country, and the vast majority of which were born in Canada. This would go far beyond just putting Japanese Canadians in camps. It extended to interrogations, curfews, job loss, property loss, and in some cases forced relocation to Japan, and would last even after the Second World War was over. Back in 1877, and I'm going to say it now, I apologize if I pronounce anything incorrectly, but back in 1877, Manzo Nagano became the first Japanese person to immigrate to Canada when he arrived as a 19-year-old sailor. Over the next three decades, the number of Japanese coming to Canada increased, and with it, the racism against them by Canadians. One of the biggest issues for the racists was that the Japanese were getting involved in many industries that they saw as industries for white workers. One such industry was fishing, and by 1919 there were 3,267 Japanese immigrants holding fishing licenses, and 50% of the licenses issued that year went to Japanese fishermen. In 1907, the United States began to prohibit Japanese immigrants from accessing America through Hawaii. This would result in 7,000 Japanese immigrants, an increase of three times from the previous year, coming into British Columbia. To combat this, the Asiatic Exclusion League was organized by racist Vancouver laborers, and on September 7th of that year, 5,000 of them marched on Vancouver City Hall. And by the time the protesters reached City Hall, it was estimated they numbered 25,000. The crowd then soon began rioting and marching towards what was called Japantown, or Little Tokyo. They would hit Chinatown first, with windows broken and stores smashed. The rioters then began to move towards Japantown, but the Japanese Canadians were alerted to the rioting and were able to keep the rioters away without any injury or loss of life. The Asiatic Exclusion League was successful in convincing the government to limit the passports of male Japanese immigrants to 400 per year. Women were not counted towards this quota, so women who married proxy and immigrated to Canada to join their new husbands, a practice that was common after 1908, resulted in a large influx of female immigrants, and with their Canadian-born children, the population went from a temporary workforce to a permanent presence. While the racism and prejudice against Japanese Canadians from being involved in various industries would continue, with support from even the Governor-General, by 1939 there were 29,000 people of Japanese ancestry living in British Columbia. Of those, 80% were Canadian nationals. Despite this, they were denied the right to vote, barred from certain industries and professions, 
and many Canadians believe that first and second generation Japanese Canadians were loyal to Japan. During the first part of the war, discrimination against Japanese Canadians would increase, but it was after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941 when everything changed. The immediate racism against the Japanese is related in this story from Joy Kagawa. Well, my brother experienced um, a, a rather direct hit of racism um, that, that um, came to him on Monday morning when he went to school. And Pearl Harbor had um, been announced, and, uh, and, and he was um, slapped with the word Jap right away. And, and um, so, I mean, racism began for us. I, I suppose it had been there before, but it began with a new twist. Under the War Measures Act, Japanese Canadians were classified as enemy aliens, and their personal rights were removed. On December 8, 1941, 1,200 Japanese-Canadian-owned fishing vessels were impounded as a matter of national security. A month later, on January 14, 1942, the federal government ordered all male Japanese nationals between the age of 18 and 45 to be removed from 100 miles from the British Columbia coast. A ban was instituted against Japanese-Canadians fishing during the war, using shortwave radios, and they also controlled the sale of gasoline to them. The Japanese nationals removed from the coast were sent to road camps near Jasper, Alberta, and other places. On February 25, 1942, the government announced Japanese Canadians were being moved for national security. In all, 22,000 would be relocated or detained. Now, I want to put it out that a lot of Canadians did not believe that Japanese Canadians posed a threat to Canada. In fact, several senior officials in the Royal Canadian Navy, the RCMP, and other government departments were against the forced removal. Hugh Keenleyside, the Assistant Undersecretary of External Affairs, advocated heavily against removing Japanese Canadians, and he tried to remind the government of the distinction between a Japanese foreign national and Canadian citizens, but he was unsuccessful. Frederick Mead, the Assistant Commissioner of the RCMP, used his position to argue against removing Japanese Canadians. Meade had been tasked with implementing the removal of Japanese Canadians from the coast, and while he knew he could not stop the order, he slowed it down enough to allow many individuals and families to prepare. He did this by following the letter of the law, which required a set of permissions from government ministers, which slowed down the process enough to help various Canadian citizens. Captain V.C. Best from Salt Spring Island was also on the side of Japanese Canadians, and he was not shy about protesting against the anti-Japanese sentiment in the press, and he encouraged having Japanese Canadians in the armed forces. Major General Kenneth Stewart would state, From the Army point of view, I cannot see that Japanese Canadians constitute the slightest menace to national security. With the Order in Council PC-1486, allowing for the removal and detaining of any person which was used specifically for Japanese Canadians, the government moved swiftly into action. The British Columbia Security Commission was established a week after the order went through, and on March 16th, the first Japanese Canadians were transported from the British Columbia coast and put in Hastings Park. This was a temporary measure, putting the Japanese Canadians in the Vancouver grounds before they were sent onwards to internment camps in the interior. Eventually, 8,000 detainees would be at Hastings Park, with women and children living in the livestock building. Many of the men were sent off to work on road camps, leaving their families behind, and not by choice. 
For those who were forced to leave everything behind after they were removed from their homes, that all went to the government, and we'll get back to that later. Tom Tamaji described living in Hastings Park as such. I was a 22-year-old Japanese-Canadian, a prisoner in my own country of birth. We were confined inside the high-wire fence of Hastings Park, just like caged animals. Soshi Matsushita would relate what she saw at the park upon arrival. They took me to a stall, a stall for animals, and there was this young mother. She couldn't understand English. She was crying and crying. She was beside herself in panic. They had taken her kids from her. It was like she was all alone in the world. Conditions within the building were terrible. Washroom facilities were crude at best, and waste flowed openly. As can be expected with so many people crammed into the building, infectious diseases spread quickly. Measles, mumps, chickenpox, and more quickly infected hundreds. Mary O'Hara would relate, When I got the mumps, I was secluded for ten days in an underground storage room that was dark and gloomy. There were lots of smaller kids there, and I had to babysit and comfort them, even though I was sick too. Tuberculosis spread as well and discarded furniture and equipment was used to build a 180-bed hospital and a smaller 60-bed hospital that was set up in the poultry barn. Rollerland was where the boys, aged 13 to 18, were housed, while also serving as a wash house for everyone. Two large mess halls were set up, one for men, one for women, and according to the BC Security Commission, 1.5 million meals were served there. Tom Tagami would relate regarding the food. The food served in tin plates and bowls was terrible, and due to unsanitary conditions, everyone in the park suffered with severe cases of diarrhea. One day we protested by staging a one-day hunger strike. Everyone went to the mess hall, got their food, and dumped it on the table and left. But it didn't do much good. Mary Kitagawa would say, We were fed in the poultry section at rough tables with tin plates, and our hair, skin, and clothes were soon permeated with the stench of animal urine and feces. Within the forum building, 1,200 men were housed, and while the men waited to be assigned work, most had nothing to do while their wives took care of the children, and some of their children attended school at the grounds. Muriel Kitagawa would say of the experience, The men looked so terribly at loose ends, wandering around the grounds, sticking their noses through the fence watching the golfers, lying on the grass, going through the place I felt so depressed that I wanted to cry. Kiyozo Kazuta had been sent to a road camp, but would return to Vancouver after he had been told by his wife that she had applied to go to a sugar beet farm. Unfortunately, by the time he got back, another family had taken the spot, and he was taken to Hastings Park, where he would work for 15 cents an hour, and he described the atmosphere as such. The morale was very low. Teenagers were wild, thieves many. Ayo Hagashi joined her family in Hastings Park, and she would relate her experience. And uh, when we uh, finally got in to see my mother, um, I found that they were that she was, along with hundreds of others, installed in these uh, horse stalls in the. Uh, what kind of building would that? Well, be? I suppose where they kept the horses, racehorses. I would something a, like that. And um, everything was cold and drafty, and there was no privacy. And mother had put up. Bed spread across the opening, and uh, she was on one of these bunks in there. And um, she had but the smell was something terrible. They, uh, it, it was a very horsey smell around. And uh, I know that 
she had said, and all the people around had tried to clean the stalls out, but they couldn't get between the cracks of the boards and so forth. And uh, it was no wonder that many people caught colds while they were there or got sick. Many of the Japanese Canadians brought their cars to Hastings Park, and while there was no barbed wire, there were those tall walls, and day passes had to be approved to leave. For the vehicles that were parked in the middle of the Hastings Park racetrack, the government department, the custodian of enemy property, sold their vehicles and all their properties at auction without telling the owners. The irony was that the government paid for the forced internment of the Japanese Canadians by selling things like homes, farms, personal property, and businesses. The hope of the Canadian government was that by selling their possessions and property, it would deter the Japanese Canadians from settling in British Columbia again. Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King would issue a ruling that all property be removed from Japanese Canadians, but the Japanese Canadians were told that their property would be held in trust until they resettled elsewhere. The personal property was sold for very low prices, and the government did hold on to the money in accounts for those in the camps. They were limited to withdrawals of only $100 a month, or $1,541 today. And essentially, the Japanese Canadians were forced to use their own funds to pay for their own confinement. By the end of the fall of 1942, Hastings Park was empty of the people who had been moved there. Many of the men had been moved to work camps, while the women and children moved inland to the internment camps. But what about those Japanese Canadians who signed up to fight for Canada during the Second World War? While they were technically exempt from military service because they were, and this is in the words of the government, oriental racial origin, many still enlisted. And then when they were discharged, they discovered that they not only did not have the rights reinstated, but that they could not even return home to where they had once lived on the British Columbia coast. Japanese detainees were taken to a variety of empty communities in the interior of British Columbia, including Slocan and Greenwood. For those men that wanted to stay with their families, and not be sent to a road crew, they had the option of going to the sugar beet farms in Alberta and Manitoba, where they'd be able to live with their families. Near Lethbridge, several families arrived to begin working at the beet farms. Dick Kenishiro would relate in his history that they arrived in Alberta with virtually nothing more than the clothing on their backs and a few meager possessions. Money among these people was a scarce commodity. Trying to support their families on a limited income, coupled with having to adapt to a totally new way of life in an oft-hostile environment, created many hardships. My father recalls having to walk 7 to 10 miles to Coaldale, or riding in the back of a truck in sub-zero temperatures to buy family necessities. Those who worked in the beet farms were restricted in their movements, and the BC Security Commission would do occasional checks to ensure the detainees were accounted for. Kanashiro would say of the housing for the families, They often consisted of abandoned buildings quickly cleaned and renovated to house a family. Space was at a premium in these homes. Two or three rooms had to suffice for a family of eight or ten people. He continues, Water was always a problem. Lakes and wells provided water for drinking, cooking, and washing. Often it had to be carried a considerable distance each day. The wells had to be cleaned periodically as the field mice and insects had the habit of drowning themselves. For anyone who resisted going to the internment camp, they were sent to prisoner of war camps in Ontario. And with Japanese Canadians being forced into essentially manual labour on roads and farms, the Canadian government continued this effort by creating policies that directed Chinese, Japanese and Indigenous into farming 
and sectors of the economy that white Canadians were abandoning for more lucrative areas. This would result in the Japanese-Canadian fishing industry being devastated. As for the road camps, in 1942-43, 1,600 men were working at road camps, but this would go down to 200 men in 1943-44 because of the policy to return married men to towns and settlements to rejoin their families. Wages for the workers at these work camps was 25 cents an hour for laborers. They were also charged 25 cents per meal and $1 a month for medical and income tax. Once at the camp, the Japanese Canadians had to adjust themselves to their new reality. Conditions were often poor enough that the Red Cross actually transferred food shipments from civilians to the internees. For the fathers and husbands who were sent away from their families, conditions were not much better. At one point, 15 men who were working in the Slocan Valley protested by refusing to work for four days. The only demand was to be reunited with their families. In response, the men were informed that if they refused to work, they would be sent to the Immigration Building Jail in Vancouver. For some of the men, they would later relate at the time that they hoped Japan would win the war and Canada would be forced to compensate them. When families began to arrive at the camps, which were typically these ghost towns, there was very little infrastructure to support them. Typically, there was no water or electricity, and usually families had to live in houses with several other families or live outside in tents while shacks were constructed for them. These shacks were often small to begin with, and they were made with damp green wood. And when winter hit, the wood would make everything damp, and with no insulation, the inside of the shack was freezing at night. Most who came to the camp received nothing except that wood to build a shack and a stove. Men could work construction to support their families, and since Japanese Canadians were forced to support themselves and buy food, employment was vital. Kitaguchi Miyagawa would say of life at an internment camp near Hope, B.C., Our life in Tajimi was ordinary. Nothing too exciting. We did find living quarters crowded as we shared a small kitchen with six others. Each house consisted of four bedrooms and a kitchen, which was really a combination of dining, sitting room, and kitchen. There were 347 houses, and each house held eight people. Despite all of this, the Japanese Canadians began to work together to improve their situation. Since many groups had been removed from the same neighborhood in Vancouver and put in the same camp, this helped to foster a sense of community and belonging. The preserved communal ties helped them to begin to negotiate better conditions at camps, and the Japanese Canadians would build hot and cold showers, improve campsites with gardens and flowers, and would win the respect of those who lived in the area. Lloyd Crate of the Yellowhead area would say, the Japanese people were very honest and would always return a favor. Joy Kagawa would speak of the internment community. Community, when it's um, thrown together in adversity, um, does a great deal um, to, to survive psychically, and there's a great spiritual strength that uh, arises in people, I think. And um, so one can abide both the good and the evil in life in whatever place one is. I mean, you hear about soldiers who remember the time with great fondness because of the camaraderie they experienced then and have lost in later life. Mm -hmm. So I think that the world is very complex in that way, and that good does come in evil time. David Suzuki also speaks of his experience leaving home and being sent to an internment camp, which was an experience that was good in some ways and terrible in others. To me, the whole thing was a hoot. I mean, I was five at the time, and I didn't understand what was going on. My father volunteered to leave the coast early and was shipped out to um, a logging camp. 
an all-male logging camp. My mother and my two sisters at that time uh, then packed up and left later. And, um, you know, it was just a big adventure. We were going on a long train ride and people were waving us off. And in retrospect now, when I think of my parents at my age or younger, having their children and losing their livelihood and being shipped out, it must have been an absolutely terrifying thing. Terrifying, frightening, uh, um, something that would make them absolutely angry. Well, we lived for three of those years in a ghost town, a mining ghost town called Slocan City. You may have heard of it, way in the interior. It's actually a beautiful part of the country, and I think there are a lot of uh, American expatriates up in that area now, the Slocan Valley, here near New Denver. Yeah, I know where it is. And again, as a child, I remember it as a place where we used to go up in the mountains and gather wildflowers and, and sneak out fishing. We weren't supposed to have fishing rods and uh, camp and, and have wonderful adventures. So it was uh, <clears throat> kind of an enchanted place. Did uh, you live uh, your family all together? Yes, my mother and two sisters and, and I, and then a, th a third sister was born much later, lived in a small room in um, an old hotel, actually. We had communal cooking and communal baths. I learned to swim in a communal bathtub that was as big as this room, and uh, communal outhouses. The room was uh, very, very tiny. It had room for a bunk bed and a table to eat and was crawling with bed bugs. And I can remember going to bed at night and getting up all bitten all over my body. It was a filthy place. And we had to walk to school. In, um, it was actually um, an instant village of houses that were uh, set up. I can't even remember the name of the town now. I guess it was a mile or two away. And it was really the association with children that was the most terrifying aspect of the whole thing to me because most of the kids had, had parents who were born in Japan and they could speak Japanese. They went to Japanese school, so they were quite bilingual. I only spoke English. English was spoken always at home. And so they used to beat the hell out of me all the time because I couldn't really communicate with them. I was a Canadian and they were still Japanese and bitterly Japanese because the Canadian government had told them they were. And I remember one experience when I saw um, a group of white children, I think they were Dukabors, I'm not sure, and uh, went over to play with them and they kicked me, kicked me around and beat me up because I was a Jap. And that is just an amazing thing between the ages of five and nine to, to have this um, uh, just wondering what the hell I am hated by Japanese kids because I couldn't speak the language, but resented by whites because I looked like a Jap. Stan Carr was a guard at a Japanese internment camp, and he'd relate the following. The camp was built by the men themselves, and well-kept grounds with gardens, footbridges, and a large steam bath made by heating rocks over a wood fire and using river water pulled up by a bucket and a rope. Now, it should be noted that the government made sure that the internment camps were not forcing anyone to stay in the camp. They were not legally interned. Anyone could leave the camp. But the problem was that they could not legally work or attend school outside the camps. Once the war was over, there was no quick return for the Japanese Canadians. Mackenzie King offered Japanese Canadians two choices. They could move to Japan or move east of the Rocky Mountains. In 1946, 
4,000 former internees sailed back to Japan, with half of them being first-generation immigrants to Canada and 1,300 being children under the age of 16. At the same time, steps were taken to keep Japanese out of certain industries, as this report on the timber industry relates from 1948. Canadian citizens of Japanese ancestry, employed on Crown Timberlands in British Columbia, are being thrown out of work these days as B.C. government policy, now that the Dominion government is relinquishing its war emergency measures, comes back into effect. For more than half a century, it has been government policy in this province that no Chinese or Japanese shall be employed on Crown Timberlands. When an individual contracted with the government to cut the timber, he signed that he would employ no such person. Otherwise, the contract would be null and void. After Pearl Harbor, however, the Dominion government took charge of the Japanese in B.C., moving them from the coast areas. Ottawa overrode the B.C. policy and put many of the Japanese to work on Crown Timberlands, far away from the coast. Now the Dominion has cancelled its order, and B.C. government policy carries on. All persons who have made contracts with the government for cutting up timber on Crown lands have been advised that no Japanese are to be employed. Some hundreds of men are affected. Ban against Chinese has been largely removed. Some time ago, the government gave permission to Chinese, who are Canadian citizens under Canada's Citizenship Act, to work on Crown Timberlands. But the ban against Japanese is still in force, even though Japanese born in Canada are full citizens under the Citizenship Act. Before Pearl Harbor, B.C. had 22,000 citizens of Japanese blood. More than 15,000 are now settled in other parts of Canada. <clears throat> the ban against these people living on the Pacific coast has never been lifted. Today, if a Japanese who was born on the B.C. coast should show up there without permission, he would be arrested. At the last session of the B.C. legislature, the vote was given to Chinese, but the ban against Japanese, except those who served in Canada's armed forces, was carried on. At one time, the ban against Orientals working on Crown Timberlands was the law of the province. However, as law, it was found ultra vires, and it was removed from the books, though the policy was continued. This is Jim Nesbitt reporting to the CBC from CJBI in Victoria. In late 1947, Justice Henry Byrd would be tasked with heading a royal commission that would look at the claims of Japanese Canadians living in Canada for losses resulting from receiving less than fair market value of their property. Originally, Byrd would hear individual claims, but due to the huge amount of people, this was abandoned and a category formula was created instead. In 1950, the commission would come to the following conclusions. The commission found that claims relating to fishing boats would receive 12.5% of the sale price as compensation. Out of 950 fishing boats that were seized in 1941, only 75 claims would be processed. Claims relating to fishing nets and gear would receive 25% of the sale price. Claims relating to cars and trucks would receive 25% of the sale price. And claims related to personal belongings were deemed mostly worthless, and claimants could only receive the commission plus 6.8% of the sale price. There were nearly no claims relating to personal real estate, and farmers whose property had been seized would receive a collective payment of $632,226, less than half the total claim they were looking for. The biggest claim processed by the Commission was $69,950 by the Royston Lumber Company, 
which had originally put forward a claim of $268,675. The smallest claim was to Ishina Makino for $2.50 for a claim on a car. Anyone who took a claim through the Bird Commission was also required to sign a form saying they would not press for any further claims. For those who wanted to get back to their homes in the coast of British Columbia, there was a lot of pushback from the British Columbia politicians. Ian McKenzie, the Minister of Pensions, would say, It is the government's plan to get these people out of BC as fast as possible. It is my personal intention, as long as I remain in public life, to see they never come back here. Let our slogan be for British Columbia, No Japs from the Rockies to the Sea. Many Japanese Canadians would move to the east, settling in areas like Toronto. But public protests began to increase, and the order in council that allowed for the forced deportation was challenged on the basis that it was a crime against humanity, and that a citizen could not be deported within their own country. This was eventually referred to the Supreme Court of Canada, and in a 5-2 decision, the court found the law was valid. Three justices found that the order was completely valid, and two found that it was valid, but that saying women and children were threats to national security was not valid. After this, academics and some politicians began to protest the decision, and the House of Commons would revoke the legislation to send the remaining Japanese Canadians to Japan. It would not be until 1948 that Japanese Canadians would earn the right to vote, and it would not be until April 1949 that all restrictions were lifted on Japanese Canadians. By 1961, Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson stated that the confinement was a black mark on the history of Canada. On September 22, 1988, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney would apologize in the House of Commons on behalf of the Canadian government for the wrongs it committed against Japanese Canadians. The apology included a redress payment of $21,000 to individuals, and amazingly, it would see the War Measures Act abolished. This was his official apology. I know that I speak for members on all sides of the House today in offering to Japanese Canadians the formal and sincere apology of this Parliament for those past injustices against them and against their families and against their heritage and our solemn commitment and undertaking to Canadians of every origin that such violations will never again in this country be countenanced or repeated. Many notable Canadians were interned in Japanese internment camps, including, and again, I apologize for mispronouncing any of these, Robert Ito, who will go on to have a successful career in television on Quincy M.E. and Falcon Crest. Joy Kagawa, who would be a noted author and recipient of the Order of Canada, and the person that we heard from earlier in the episode. Shigetaka Sasaki, who would found the first judo club in Canada, Masami Tsuaraka, who is considered to be the father of Canadian karate and a recipient of the Order of Ontario, and of course, the aforementioned David Suzuki, who was voted one of the greatest Canadians in history in 2004. Information comes from HastingsPark1942.ca, The Canadian Encyclopedia, Ready Made and District, Wikipedia, Yellowhead Pass and Its People, Stories of Japanese Canadian Pioneers, Under Eight Flags, and the CBC. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadax.com, and you can visit my website where I have hundreds of articles on Canada's history by going to canadax.com. 
Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.